it's not me telling you how to be a leader. It's me creating an environment to allow the leader that's within you to come out, that you have confidence and know that you can be authentic, that you can connect with people, that you can lead with impact and not feel like you've got to have a business card or a title or whatever to force people to do something. Hey there and welcome to Lead with Impact. I am super excited to have you with me here today. Thanks so much. Hope you are well. We're going to be having a really interesting conversation today with Dean Hallett. Dean is a leadership expert and he's most well known for being the CFO for Fox, where he was a key member of the executive team and instrumental in shaping the overall strategy of the studio. Before that, he was the executive vice president and CFO for the Walt Disney Studios, where he developed a unique and highly effective leadership training program for early and mid-career managers. So I anticipate talking with Dean about leadership, about Disney, about who knows what. Before we get there, I would like to drop a word about my new book. It's called The 10 Habits of Influential Leaders, and I wrote it to help people that are leading teams and would like to skip some of the headaches that come with managing people and getting them all on the same page and making them want to do great things. And people are saying really nice things to me about it, which I appreciate. Uh, Some folks have called it a self-help book. Others are called it a leadership book or a culture book. I just know I wrote it to help people get results faster and to be able to start sleeping at night without going through the headaches of wondering how to handle problems on their teams. So if that is of interest to you, you can find it on Amazon. You can also find it on my website. Let's turn our attention to Dean Hallett. I can't wait to talk to him. So let's have that conversation. Dean Hallett, welcome to Lead with Impact. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be here. I am super excited to talk to you. First of all, the whole name of this podcast lends itself towards leadership. Although we don't talk about leadership in every episode, when I do get a chance to talk about it, especially with somebody who's done some of the things that you've done, I get excited and I can't wait to sort of toss around ideas and thoughts and see how we can help our listeners really get better at this and help themselves and help others. Well, thanks. Like I said, I'm excited to be here and have the opportunity to talk about leadership. It's something that I I talk about every day. I believe I walk the walk and talk the talk, and it's just part of who I am. So being able to share that with somebody is great. Tell me the journey. Most people don't grow up or even go to college and say, I want to be a leadership expert. Usually (laughs) usually that comes from doing other things that bring us here. So. I wish I was that self-aware when I was young. My father was a a very high-level partner in what back then was the big eight accounting firms. And I was good at math, and it all seemed to come easy for me. And I said, I'm just going to be a a partner in a CPA firm, and that's my journey. And I came out of college, and I went and spent seven and a half years with what at the time was Ernst & Winnie, now Ernst & Young, EY, and really like I said, thought that that was going to be my career path. But the more time I spent there, there were a few things 
that uh, I learned that led me to the conclusion that this wasn't going to be my long-term career. The, the first one was in 1979, late 70s, early 80s, I did what back then was considered a self-awareness training and what in today's vernacular would be called EQ, emotional intelligence training. And I was able to learn that there was so much more to life than just my intellect. And I felt like I was hiding behind my intellect. I wasn't really connecting with a lot of people. And look, I could go way back into my childhood. I had a bully as a brother. I learned to be an individual survivor. I I, I always felt I could survive anything. But I wasn't really getting everything out of life that I felt ought to be there. And through this awakening, if you will, I realized how much I was missing. And as the culture was shifting in public accounting, I realized that wasn't really going to be the be all end all for me. Uh, Part of it had to do with the old guard that I was actually at Ernst. My dad was at Ernst and I knew the old guard. They were great guys. It was a great culture, even though that's not a word I used back then. And it started to change. And I could spend a lot of time telling you all the little signs, but bottom line for me, I tell people all the time, find a culture you can thrive in. And it became very clear to me, I was no longer going to thrive there. And I took an opportunity to branch out. And I was actually looking at Disney at the time through a friend that had their foot in the door. And I think luckily, one of our clients at Ernst reached out and asked me if I would go to work for them. And I actually took that job at Anthony Industries. I was the swimming pools group controller. And it was small enough that I really learned how to add value inside a company as opposed to as an auditor looking in from the outside. And there were a small management team. I got involved in everything from how to build a pool better, cheaper, faster, litigation claims for drunk people breaking their necks off of diving boards, how to, how to monitor and, and work on cash flow to make sure we were funded properly, on and on and on. I was involved in everything around the company. And so ultimately, when I left there and went to Disney, I was very well equipped and very confident that I could bring value into the operations. And, and it's really funny. I grew up in Southern California, right next to Hollywood, never thought about working in the entertainment industry. In the industry. It never occurred to me. And all of a sudden, I, w- I actually came into Disney through the internal audit group for just eight months and then ended up getting a job as the director of finance in motion picture marketing. And suddenly I was a studio guy, never looked for it, never sought it out. And suddenly I was in there and it ended up being a 25 year career in that space. And it was the best thing that ever happened for me. I'm very blessed to have had that opportunity and being amongst those creative types. I go back to full circle to that training I did in the late seventies, early eighties and how to connect with those people on a meaningful level because otherwise I would have just been viewed as the finance police and I never would have gotten anywhere. Absolutely. That's an amazing story. And I want to hear all, all about this because I think I shared with you privately beforehand, and I probably mentioned it on this podcast before to listeners. I'm a huge fan of Disney just Uh as far as I'm the guy who wants to go there every year and hang out at the parks (laughs) and, and, and do all that stuff. But also just the way they run their business and the way they get people to buy in, you know, from the leadership side of it, too. There's so much there. But I'm curious, as far as your journey, about the culture piece and the right fit versus the wrong fit. 
because it sounds like you were you were still doing financial things over at Disney, right? You were still a money guy. You were still a numbers guy. And yeah, like, I worked my way up to the CFO of the studio. So it was a finance track all the way up. Finance all the way up. And a lot of times, and I know I'm really projecting here, we think of finance people as more numbers people than people people. And so can you talk to me a little bit about that, about how your journey not only allowed you to be great at finance all the way up to the to CFO, but also brought about that piece where you started thinking about what's the best way to lead people? Yeah, like I said, I, when it was in the marketing department, I really learned to implement the skills that I learned in the personal emotional intelligence trainings into the way I approach business. So the first thing and most important thing for me was develop, to develop relationships with these people. So I wasn't viewed as an adversary. I also knew that in the motion picture marketing department, it was essential that I not impede the creative process. So I had to learn how do we both win? How do I find a way to monitor budgets where, to be truthful, they weren't evaluated on the profitability of a movie. They were evaluated on how big the box office was. So spending control was an issue. So how could I work with them to manage our spending as best as possible without impeding the creative process? So we talked about special vendor deals. We talked about different approaches to doing different things without me saying, don't do this, don't do that. You can't hire this vendor. It was a collaborative process. It took some time to develop that, that relationship, but ultimately it paid off in spades. I'll jump ahead here for a second because I think it's really important. There were a lot of people in terms of finance skills that were better than I was when I was at Disney. And when the previous CFO left the company, I came across a note that he had written to the, to the chairman and to the head of legal and business affairs. And it basically said, Dean needs to be the CFO. He knows how to talk to the chairman. I was not getting the CFO job because I had the best finance skills, the best strategic skills, any of those. It was because I had the ability to work with people in a way that was constructive. And I look back at all the steps that I took along the way to make that happen. And I look at people that stopped advancing because that wasn't a priority for them. Either there wasn't a priority or they weren't trained and developed. I've, I've listened to some of your podcasts and I've heard, I don't remember if it was you or your guests talking about leadership is not something that you're necessarily born with. It can be developed. It can be, you can be trained. And I like to say it this way. I don't believe in the Peter principle. It, Peter principle says people are elevate to the level of incompetence. And I believe they are elevated to the level just beyond that which for which they've been trained. And usually that is, I'm an individual performer, I get up to this level, and then I don't know how to get results through people, I don't know how to manage a team, nobody's shown me, and I flounder. I think it's the, the, it's what I call the missing piece in most organizations, actually, that to be a high-performance organization, you want high-performance leadership at all levels of the company. And so many companies just don't do it. Well, you know, I concur with that. That is uh, <laughs> 100%. There's two questions I have for you about that. Sure. The first one, I guess, question slash thought, when you told your story about the promotion and how valuable that self-awareness EQ training was to you, but how many people might have written that off as fluff? 
especially in finance, where you know I need to know how to crunch numbers and I need to know how to negotiate with these people making the movies. Like this other stuff, that's a luxury. But it sounds like it made an incredible difference for you in separating yourself from your peers. Yeah, I'm sure there are people that will write it off as fluff. I'm sure people, like I said before, use it as lip service. I don't think that the interesting thing here was I wasn't being hired by the finance people. I was being hired by the people that ran the studio. The chairman of the studio was a creative. He wanted, you know, he wanted somebody he could work with. He didn't want the finance police. It's important. I'm not saying I didn't have to have a, a proper foundation in finance. I absolutely had to have that. It just wasn't the key differentiator. And, and I think that, you know, people are, it's funny. So many people are instructed in so many ways about how to be, you know, act this way, do this. These are the questions you should ask. I believe more in being myself and it's what makes me unique. It's what makes me special. And if somebody really connects with who I am as an individual, then that's going to make all the difference in the world. I will take culture over technical skills any day. It's not to say I don't want technical skills, but culture to me trumps everything else. It is, it is what drives a company, what can shift the entire company into high performance. Absolutely. What's that old chestnut culture eats strategy for breakfast? Yeah, um, absolutely. 100%. And then I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that relationship with the creative people. Now, I'll preface this by saying my education about the movie studio business is slightly less than the length of time we've been talking so far. <laughs> so <laughs> I know next to nothing about it, but it sounds like that could be really contentious if someone's making a movie and they feel they need the budget to succeed at their movie. And yet they have to talk to Dean who wants to be fiscally conscious. It sounds like that might be without the right degree of emotional intelligence and the ability to relate. It sounds like that could be a really contentious relationship. Well, yeah, let's look at the practical realities of it. I don't know one studio CFO that has ever flat out said to his chairman, you can't spend that. You can't make that movie. It's all about having an impact in the process. And so we have lots of conversations. What are the risks? There, were, there was a movie... I'm not going to talk about the name of it, but it was a movie that had three prequels to it. And that movie, the fourth movie, in order to be successful with as much money as they wanted to spend on it, was going to have to be, I think, 50% bigger at the box office than the first three movies combined. And we just, we had this conversation. We said, I, where is the upside? That's just to break even, by the way. That's not even to make a profit. So look at all the risks. Look how expensive this movie is. And we had conversations and they don't always like to hear what I have to say, but I was always willing to at least put my point of view out there. I didn't have the final say. The chairman always had the final say. And if you look around, there are chairmen that have lost their jobs at studios because big movies flop and they're, they're butts on the line. I'm there to be advice and counsel is the way I approached it and to give them all the information from my perspective because my finance skills are pretty good and it gives them a perspective that they may not have just on their own. So it's important. I talk all the time now about getting as many perspectives as you can. That's no secret to you, Brian. The world is, businesses are more disrupted now than they ever have been before. 
There are threats coming from all directions. And I think it's nearly impossible, probably literally impossible for any one individual to be able to assess all that. And they have to be able to have their team be the eyes and ears. And the only way that that works is if you have an open enough culture where those people feel free to speak. And that's how I approached it. That's how I weighed in on the big financial decisions that we had to make. Amazing. And you might have already answered this, but I would like to ask it anyway. Does the act of leadership, even though I don't think it's one act, but the art of leadership, maybe we should say, is that fundamentally different in a creative space like Disney than it might have been at EY? or it might have been in a different type of organization? I don't think the fundamentals are any different. I think the practical application becomes very different. You can go into any industry, and I'm sure the higher up the ladder you go, there are big egos. But there are a tremendous number of egos in Hollywood. And I think it's more challenging because those egos are... The way those egos speak is, I know, what's, I know what's better. I know what to do here. And instinctively, I know what it should be. And when you want to create an open collaborative culture where people feel free to, to weigh in and be engaged in the process, which builds loyalty and retention and all these great things in the people, there's a lot of resistance to that because I believe that those egos feel threatened, that they don't want to lose control. The reality is, the people that have the positions of authority, they have the final decision-making power anyway. The whole idea is just to be able to hear all the points of view to be able to make the most informed decision that they can. It's harder. I will tell you in Hollywood there, it doesn't matter how high up the organization, or I should say it this way, it doesn't matter how far down the organization you go. There are people in those seats with egos that just get so much in the way of allowing people to grow and develop because they just... They don't believe, they believe in command and control. They don't believe in, in a collaborative culture. And it's shifting. I do see it shifting. Disney, by the way, I know you love the Disney leadership. I was there under Michael Eisner. It was command and control. But make no mistake, I have tremendous respect and admiration for what they've done with the brand. To your point, how they get everybody behind it. They all know what is going to make the company be successful. And they all follow those directions. The difference is, and it was worse with Michael, was nobody trusts anybody. So they're all trying to be in their own silo in terms of their own operation. Bob Iger's done a great job at fixing a lot of that. But it's still, well, look, Disney bought Fox. I came from Fox. I've talked to a lot of people, and they feel that at Disney, they were told, go over here. Here's your office or your cubicle. Here's what we want you to do. Just do it. Don't ask any questions. And so on, when you watch everything they accomplish, the higher up you go in the company, sure, you get a voice. I just don't see them developing that whole middle tier. And, and that's the piece that's missing for me. So, you know, the entertainment industry, not every studio is the same. They all have a different level of collaboration. They all have a different level of command and control. So there's still some work to be done. And, you know, to be honest with you, I, I think the way I approached it is what kept me thriving there for 25 years in that environment. But I'd be kidding if I said it was always easy. <laughs> I can't imagine that it would be. 
you know, Disney is, you know, I am a fan, as I said, of them in so many ways, but it is always intriguing to sit back and they've done such a great job, I think I'm trying to say, of making fantasy look like reality right. that, you know, to sit back and maybe coldly analyze them like you would another business, a bank right. or an insurance company or an accounting company, because they've done such a great job of developing Cinderella's castle all around them that to the outsider, it just looks like a fantasy land. So it's really interesting to me to sort of get into some of the details about what that actually looks like in that kind of creative space. Yeah. And like I said, Iger's, Iger's done a lot at Disney specifically. You know, Michael had his corporate strategic, Michael Eisner had his corporate strap plan group, which I, I referred to them as the henchmen kiddingly because they would kind of go out and make sure nobody would do anything that they didn't approve of, even though they were, they'd never run a business before. They were the, the corporate strategy group. And then Michael didn't get along with Steve Jobs at Pixar. So that was an adversarial relationship, even though they were releasing movies together. And Bob cleaned all that up. He took the power away, that, that, that stigma away from the corporate strat planning group. He extended an olive branch to Pixar. So Bob really gets the power of relationships and people working together. I can't tell you how many tens of thousands of employees they have, but there is a challenge and, and somebody needs to pay attention to how those people are being developed to give them opportunities to grow. Let's transition to that, if you'd like. I know you spend a lot of time in that world now, as do I. And you mentioned earlier about the fact that we all know, and probably other people know just from observing it, even if they've never really thought about it, that many times organizations pick superior performers and try to make them leaders of people and sometimes think that that's going to be a natural and simple transformation. But the truth is it doesn't always work that way. Correct? Yeah, that's, that's, that's really true. There's an element of individuals that have had a certain level of success get to a certain point and they believe that what they've been doing has worked. And so there's a security blanket of sorts for them. They don't want to let that go. And it's, it's a challenge because ultimately if they continue to do that command and control type leadership, because that's all they know, they get into a position and they don't know the answer to something. As we've talked about, there's so much disruption coming there's so many variables, it's hard for one person to have the answer. But they believe, since they've always performed well that in, as an individual, that they individually should know the answer. So they don't want to say they don't know. So they end up coming from a place that I call, I think I know. But I don't. I really don't. And that's a dangerous platform because they can lead, be leading people down a path that doesn't make sense because they haven't listened to the other points of view. Um, I believe... I actually enjoy training and developing people right when they first start leading teams because they, they may have preconceived notions, but they don't have preconceived behaviors about how they should do it. Other than having watched people ahead of them, they haven't tried them and had, it hasn't gotten them to a certain point yet. So they're like sponges. Tell me about leadership. And they, they are so open. But the accelerated leadership program that I do inside a company pulls people from different areas of the company and brings them together. And over a nine month period, they develop this 
immense level of mutual trust and respect. And as they are continuing to work and then go back to and continue to work in their respective areas, we built a trusted network inside the company. So they can reach out, find out what's really happening in a different division, talk about the impact of what they're doing and how it might affect them. And they're thinking beyond just their own silo. And to be able to develop those kinds of behaviors right when people are first starting to lead teams, it becomes infectious. They start leading their people that way. And it really creates a culture shift once you get to a certain tipping point. And I want to come back to that. Because uh, I think there's a lot to talk about there. But I just want to circle back to one of your other points about the high performers becoming leaders and thinking they know it all. I've observed another part of that that I think makes it hard. And that is many times the very qualities that cause them to become high performers and to be chosen are qualities that for whatever reason their peers don't have. And it's very hard for those high performers then to get in a position where they have to train people to do what they did, which maybe came easily for them. Maybe they had a much stronger work ethic. Maybe they're a little bit brighter. Uh, whatever it was that made them perform at a higher level, a lot of times they come in with expectations that they're going to be leading a lot of other people just like that. And I've seen so many leaders come and get frustrated when they realize that not everybody is like that. And you have to learn how to go out and connect with these folks in a way that nobody ever necessarily needed to do with them. Yeah, you definitely have to tap into and create a connection with the people that are working for you. There are people, I, I can tell you the way I approach it. There are, I, I give people the benefit of the doubt in the beginning. I want them to have an opportunity to to shift and get on board in terms of what the direction is that the company is going from a culture standpoint, because you don't want somebody rowing the other way in the culture. If, if these people, it, what you just mentioned is a great challenge, which is exactly why I love doing leadership training for people that are just starting to lead teams because left to their own devices, their skill set may be greater in terms of the, the intellect that's required for that particular area but maybe not in how to lead these people, maybe not how to get the best out of those people. And so while those people can use, maybe able to use some technical training and development, that leader can use some leadership development and training that will allow them to see how to best manage their team and get results from them. So it's all about being open. You know, I've been, I've been 1979, so I've been doing this for what's my math, 40 years, roughly, since I did my EQ training. So I've done it within Disney and Fox and then now on my own. And I'm still looking to grow and develop every day. There's always another level. As far as I know, Maslow never hit the top of his pyramid. Right. So if I still have room to grow, certainly these people that are just starting to lead people for the first time have room to grow. And if they're open to that, then, 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 they want to be in an environment where that's supported and they can be shown how to do that. And it's really, it's not me, you know, for, you know, this better than I do. It's not me telling you how to be a leader. It's me creating an environment to allow the leader that's within you to come out, that you have confidence and know that you can be authentic, that you can connect with people, that you can lead with impact and not feel like you've got to have a business card or a title or whatever to force people to do something you understand about pulling that out. And that's all we're talking about is getting these people to realize that, that somebody can draw more out of them 
and that they can draw more out of their team. You know, in my previous example, it's not that those people are lost. It's just that somebody needs to help them get there. Exactly. And too many of them are still today being left to fend for themselves. And unfortunately, fending for yourself over time becomes the way we've always done it. And the way we've always done it becomes very hard to move away from. Yeah, you know, there's a story that, that I know of, and it, and it, if you got a minute, it's worth talking about, because doing things the way we've always done them. I don't know if you've heard the story about the monkeys, the ladder, and the banana. No, please. Sure. So they put these monkeys in a room. It was five monkeys. They put a ladder in, and on top of the ladder, they put a banana. And one monkey climbs up to the top of the ladder and reaches to grab the banana. And right when he does that, they turn a fire hose of ice-cold water onto the monkeys and they hate that. So they all go down. So they then take out the monkey that had gone up the ladder and they put it and they replace it with another monkey. And when that monkey sees the ladder, that monkey starts to go up the ladder. The other monkeys pull the monkey down and start beating them up because they don't want to get shot with a fire hose again. So then they take another one of the monkeys out, not the one that climbed the ladder, one of the other ones. And they keep doing this to a point where None of the five monkeys that are in the room have ever seen the fire hose. And every time they put in a new monkey, monkey starts to go up the ladder, they all pull him down and beat him up. Why? Because for those, that's the only way they've ever seen it done. They're unwilling to let go of the way they always do things. And, and we get like that. We just do it because it's always been done that way. And are, are you familiar with, I imagine you're familiar with the Johari window? No, I'm not. Oh, Please okay. share. So the Johari window is just a simple matrix. And on one side of the matrix, it says, this is, I'm aware, this is what I do see about myself and this is what I don't see about myself. So awareness, self-awareness. On the other matrix, it's what others see about me and what others don't see about me. So what you and I both see about me is my public self. It's, it's out in the arena, people see that. And there's no inconsistency in this part of me that you see. Then there's the part that, I know about me, but you don't. That's my private self. I have, may not have let that out, let you see that. And that's the facade. That's, that's sort of the facade that I'm putting out because I'm protecting this, this part of me that I might be concerned about opening up. And then there's the part that you see about me that I don't see. And that's my blind spot. I'm sure you talk about people's blind spots. My And then there's the one that neither of us see, which is sort of a mystery box. And I think it's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy, because if I share more about me with you and move more into the public arena, and if you give me feedback about my blind spots, then what's in those quadrants moves into my public self and creates like a vacuum. And I start learning and discovering even more about myself. So I always say feedback is the, the least expensive most valuable management tool that we have. So you were talking about these people, they don't know, nobody's shown them. They need some feedback, whether it's a, an internal mentor, whether it's a coach, whatever it is, we all can use feedback. We all have blind spots. I get it wrong. There are times where I definitely get it wrong and I, I miss something and I'm always open to feedback. I may not be open to the way somebody wants to give it to me sometimes. It may be uncomfortable, but I always value the feedback and no matter what my reaction is in the moment, I always spend time seeing 
how I can learn from it, how I can apply it. That is such a powerful mindset, I think. It's hard for us to get to sometimes because, you know, it involves vulnerability and it involves, like you said earlier, opening up the egos that we all have for the possibility that somebody's going to give it a good slap. But it's such a powerful thing to be able to do that and learn from it. It's interesting. So when I run those leadership programs, every group's different and they sort of shift culturally and start trusting each other and become invested in each other's future at different points in time. And sometimes I'm six months into the nine month program and I feel like they're stuck and I'm, I'm doing everything I can, everything I feel like I know how to help create the environment for that shift to take place. And I will, I'll go to my mentor, I'll go to my coach and I'll say, here's what's going on. What am I missing? Here's how I'm thinking about it. Here's what my approach is. And sometimes the feedback will be, for example, this is just making this up. The feedback is I'm too invested in the result. I'm driving for a result so hard that I'm making that more important than caring about them. So that might be a blind spot of mine in the moment because I do like to, I'm a high achiever. I like to get results, but I'm always, and and so maybe my ego is going to get impacted when I first hear that, but ultimately I'm going to listen to it because I do care about those people. And, to be honest with you, the only reason I do this now is because it took me so long to learn some of these lessons that anything I can do to help people get there faster, it's I, I feel like I'm adding value and, and having an impact. Same here. To be a shortcut to all the pain that I went through on my journey and all the things I got wrong. And the thing about leadership, which... I've said before in this podcast, I think people don't realize or think about is that if I'm leading somebody and I'm a bad leader, my being a bad leader isn't only harming me, right? I'm affecting somebody else's career. I'm probably affecting their home life. I may change their lives entirely if they get so fed up with me that they decide to quit their job and go do something else. I'm impacting their kids. It almost boggles the mind to think about some of the impacts that we can have, not only on our companies and our bottom lines, uh, but on people's lives when we are just not good at this. So that's why I think what you do is super valuable. Yeah. You, you mentioned something before we had our call about using leadership to draw out creativity. Hmm. And I just want to mention, I mean, I have found there are unbelievable ideas and talents living in the hearts and the minds of the people in these organizations. And all you got to do is create an environment where they, they feel safe to bring it out. And that's why I, I say, you know, that missing piece is developing them because if you can get that right, then you're creating a future of the organization because these people can be coming to the table. It's not just the ideas they bring. Maybe you're not going to implement their idea, but they're going to feel engaged in the process. They're going to feel that the company's invested in them. So their loyalty is going to go up and, they'll want even more rather than just be a nine to five job or whatever it is. They really want the company to succeed and they want to add value in any way they can. And they're going to come to the table if you let them. If you had to wrap up everything you do, and this is probably a lot to ask into (laughs) one statement, I like to call it the impact statement, you know, a message that you would want to send to the world about what you do or about anything really, what would that be? You know, I think I would say that, I, what I do is create an opportunity for companies to shift their culture. 
because if you shift the culture, everything changes. And a placeholder vision statement for a culture that I use is creating an open and collaborative culture where creativity and innovation thrive. And when I first came up with that statement, I didn't even know it was sequential, but it is because if you're more, the more open you are to different people's ideas, to having quality communication, to improving each other, the more collaborative you're gonna be, the more collaborative you are, the more you're gonna be sharing ideas and become more creative in your solutions to problems. And the more creative you are as an organization, the more innovative you're gonna become. So in a world of constant disruption, if a company wants to be able to stay ahead of the competition, instead of reacting to ideas that are out there, being able to be proactive and leading the industry, you can do it through the hearts and minds of your people just by creating that culture. Because the, the creativity is unlimited, it's coming from within the company. Such a powerful way to put it. And someday we can do a whole episode on that because I think we could talk about that concept for a long time. There's a lot to dig into. But I think if people hopefully get to the end of this podcast and hear that statement, that's going to go a long way in, in changing the way people think and allowing them really, again, to put other people in a place where they can succeed. I agree. If somebody's hearing this and wants to reach out to you, how can they find you? My website is Hallett, H-A-L-L-E-T-T, HallettLeadership.com. And uh, also mentioned that it's not out yet. I've never written a book before. It's an undertaking that didn't know what I was getting myself into. But sometime, I think in the next couple of months, I will be publishing, putting that book out, and it'll be available on my website. And what it does is it talks about the practical application of everything we've been talking about during my journey what are the things that I've, the challenges that I've faced? I helped build a digital supply chain, multi-year project. I led that effort at Fox. And, you know, I love parables, but I got to tell you, parables, everything seems to so nicely fall into place, but real life is messy. And in the book, I talk about how messy it gets and how I use my, my development, my leadership to keep things moving forward, including developing mutual trust and respect amongst the people involved. So it's not jamming it down people's throat. It's how do you make it happen? How do you lead through impact as opposed to authority? So my book is going to be called Accelerated Leadership, How Successful Companies Develop High-Performance Cultures. Fantastic. Well, I'm extending the invitation now. Once that's out, if you would like to come back and talk about it, I would love to uh, talk about the book with you. And uh, I think there's a lot more we could uh, dig into. That'd be great. Uh, that'd be great, Brian. This has been exciting. I would love to come back and talk with you again.